you take your Bibles with me to John chapter 8 this morning, please. John chapter 8, we're going to look there first at a passage of Scripture and then go to Acts chapter number 5, which is where we're headed for the bulk of our time together. There's a verse in John chapter 8 that I want to show, show us here kind of in looking at this unstoppable truth, but Acts 5 is going to be our text. Now, last week, we saw the unstoppable courage that the apostles really lived out for us as a tremendous example. And we learned how important it is that we proclaim truth no matter the opposition that we face, even if it's not accepted, um, even if it is rejected, or certainly if it is not tolerated, we must still clearly proclaim truth. So we asked the question, what is that truth that we must proclaim? Well, John chapter 8 in verse number 30 As he spake, Jesus spake these words, many believed on him. He was teaching, and uh, many people were hearing what he was saying, and they believed what he was saying. They put their faith and trust in him. Verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, they answered him, we be of Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Well, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So the gospel here, the truth is in the gospel. And that is what Jesus was speaking in John chapter 8 where the true freedom from this bondage to sin was going to come, that was through Jesus Christ alone. So now let's go to Acts chapter number 5, because not everybody is happy with growth and change. Not everybody is happy with the growth that is taking place in the early church. They're not happy that the expansion of God's church is taking place right in front of them. Honestly, it's not a new thing today for the church to face an opponent or an enemy that wants to stop the truth from being made known. It was happening in Jesus' day. There was the religious establishment that opposed the ministry of Jesus, and what did they do? They crucified him. Now we fast forward to Acts chapter number 5, and we've got the early church facing the same religious establishment But they are going strongly against the apostles and the early church. And they're facing this same hostile approach, even to where they want the people, the apostles, to die for it. So we come to Acts chapter number 5. We see in verse number 29. Now remember, verse 28 kind of feeds right into that. They approach the religious establishment that we talked about last week with the high priest, the captain of the temple, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. All of them were a part of this council that were going against the truth because they wanted their message to be proclaimed. And so they said, didn't we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? Verse number 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
and we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. So when they heard that, they were cut to the heart. They took counsel to slay them. Now, we're going to continue in just a moment with the rest of these verses, going all the way to verse number 42. But here at the very beginning, we just see the introduction to this unstoppable truth. What is this unstoppable truth that the apostles were so passionate about, and how does it connect and relate with today's church as being the unstoppable church? Let's pray, ask God to give us wisdom. Father, we come before you this morning. I thank you for a very precious time this morning with our baby dedication and family dedication and the celebration of life. I thank you, Father, for the time that we've had to lift our voices to worship you. But now comes a very important time, a time of the instruction of God's word, where we look into your truth and we are taught from the Holy Spirit. So we open our hearts and our ears to you. Please free us from the distractions that would take our mind away from you this morning. I know that we have a lot on our mind and a lot on our heart, Lord, so we just ask for a moment of freedom from that so that we can concentrate on your text. We show our dependency on you. We rely on your teaching this morning, for it's in your son's name we pray, amen. Now, in the verses preceding this text that we just read, we see that the apostles have been unjustly thrown into prison for proclaiming the truth. We see that in verses 17 and 18. But now, miraculously, the angels come and free them, verse 18 and 19. They're freed from prison, and they're not understanding the council is so confused at what has happened. And so the men go to proclaim truth in the temple area, verse number 21. So the council confronts them, and the high priest is basically saying, he says, didn't we tell you that you could not teach in this name? The whole city is being saturated by your teaching, and you're trying to put his, Jesus' blood on our hands as if we're guilty of it. And so Peter responds in verse number 29 with the launch of the unstoppable truth that we ought to obey God rather than man. We find that going back to John chapter number 8, Jesus proclaimed what this truth was and that this truth would bring real freedom to the bondage of sin that people were encompassed by. And so what would the apostles do with that? Well, the enemy of God and his church has done everything possible through the centuries to stop the message and mission from impacting the lives of other people. And so in our passage today, we see how this truth was handled by different people. First, in the very beginning, in verse 29 through 32, the truth is declared here, the declaration of the truth. The apostles, they never altered their convictions or their message. That's an important point. Because when you look at this declaration of truth, the disciple or the apostles were going to never change their convictions. Chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. They were never going to change their message. Here they are again in verse number 29. And we cannot do that either. When we declare the truth without concern of the consequences, what we are doing is properly placing our trust in the right source. So often we are consumed by the consequences of declaring truth that we're afraid of the offense factor or we're afraid of being persecuted or we're afraid of being attacked. And so often we're consumed by the consequences that we've lost the source of our trust. But when we declare the truth, no matter if it's accepted, tolerated, or received, 
We are not concerned with the consequences, and we have our proper focus on the true source, and that is in Christ alone. And so the message has not changed through these centuries. The truth has remained the same. The same truth that the apostles would declare is the same truth that we declare today. Now, you know what has changed? Cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity has, is, has all but died at this point, and that's okay. Now, people are startled in the United States by the statistics because in the span of 2007 to 2014, there was an 8% drop in the so-called Christians in the United States. So everybody was fretting. The church is not doing its job. But on the very contrary, the church is doing its job. Because it's declaring the truth and the gospel, which is not well received by somebody who is not a true follower of Jesus Christ. Never forget that the gospel in itself is offensive to the hearer that hears it. And we also see that Ed Stetzer, he wrote this, Christianity isn't collapsing, it's being clarified. See, what we're seeing in America today is that Christianity is having a healthy pruning away of the distorted and fixed forms that are trying to describe what Christianity is. And so just in the New Testament time of the Gospels, when Jesus called out for to be true disciples, meaning to die to yourself and take up your cross, that's when many said, yeah, we've enjoyed watching your miracles. We've been really engaged with your teachings, but that's not what's here, and so I'm going my own way. And that's happening today with cultural Christianity. Some of you grew up when cultural Christianity was pretty prominent and big. Churches were packed out with people who were just going to go through the routine because it was tradition passed down from grandma to mom to me. And so now I'm going to do the same. Many people would fill in the pew and the seat and they would go through the functions of church because it was culturally acceptable. The schedule of the restaurants and the stores and the community, everything was shut down. There was nothing to do except to get up and prepare and go to church. And so cultural Christianity was blossoming. It was at an all-time high, and people would claim the name of Jesus as my religion until the time came where opportunities became distractions, and people were able to pick and choose what they would begin to do with their time and energy and then when the preacher would have enough boldness to proclaim truth of what the scripture teaches us, then we were easily offended and we said, well, that's not what I'm here for. I'm to have my ears tickled and my, my funny bone uh, sparked and I just want to enjoy the moment that I'm in until people realized that there was a Holy Spirit bringing conviction on their life and they wanted no more of that. So cultural Christianity has died. People don't go to church anymore because it's culturally accepted or expected, people are doing their own thing, and people want no more a part of it. And so Brent McCracken wrote this. He said, following Christ is not one's golden ticket to a white picket fence American dream. It's an invitation to die, to pick up a cross. Christians are those who give themselves away in love and sacrifice in order to advance a kingdom that is not of this world. And so if, if we are going to declare this truth, if we're going to go against the mindset of cultural Christianity, then we have to determine to tell others who Jesus really is. So what will you do with Jesus? Here's Peter's sermon 
Look at verse number 31. Him, Jesus, hath God exalted with his right hand. So not only is this the one that you slew and you hanged on a tree, you crucified, but resurrected by God and ascended to the right hand of the Father to be a prince and a savior. Let's look at what these two words mean. The word prince there, the Blue Letter Bible app would tell us that this is one that takes the lead in anything and thus affords an example or a predecessor in a matter. It's the, it's the thought of a pioneer. And so Peter's wording here to use of Jesus is that he is a predecessor in a matter. He is a pioneer. Pioneer in what? Well, the same Greek word that is used here in uh, prince in this verse, verse number 31, is the same one in Acts 3.15. Write that down, mark it, highlight it, do what you need to. But it says the prince of life, another sermon that Peter would preach. He was the pioneer of life. He was the founder of of life. It's the same Greek word used in Hebrews 2:10 when he said to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. He was the pioneer, the founder of their salvation. So this Jesus, what will you do with Jesus? This Jesus is the one who is the pioneer of life, the founder of life. This Jesus is the pioneer, the captain, or the founder of our salvation. And Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author, same Greek word, the pioneer, the founder, the predecessor, the example, he is the author and finisher of our faith. What we do is not man-made. This is not some concoction, whatever that word is, that, that comes into your mind of what somebody else wants to lay down in a book and say, here, follow after this. What's the word I wanted? Concoction, thank you. It was flowing so fast, I just didn't know the word, all right? So he says here that Jesus is our prince, our predecessor, our captain, the pioneer, the example that we follow he is the one for true life. Then he continues, not only the prince, but our savior. Now, the Sanhedrin would have been very familiar with this title. We've grown up in a day when we hear savior, we know just to go right away to, oh, Jesus, the only savior. But the Sanhedrin, when they heard the term of savior... This would have been something very familiar to them as a title that was used. It would have been the one that is used for physicians who would save people's life. It was used for philosophers who would solve people's problems. It was a title that was used for statesmen who would save people from danger and war. It, it, sometimes it was even a title that was given to emperors. So for him to use this word savior, referring back to Jesus, would have been one for the Sanhedrin to say, hmm, there's something important you're saying here, because there's only one true and living savior who rescues us from sin and death and judgment for all who will trust in him. There is only one savior. What happens is we, like the Sanhedrin, we look for man-made forces to be our savior. We look for everything that we can gain from relationships to finances to circumstances and emotional stability and our career and our family. And we add all of these things that give us our sense of stability. And when those are removed, we've lost our Savior. 
How do I keep living? Where do I turn? How do I even keep going? And people get in deep states of depression and take their own life when their human sources of saving are removed. That's why we have to keep our eyes on the only one true Savior who has freed us from sin, from death, and from judgment. He is the truth, the way, and the life. This truth, John 8, is the one that gives us the ultimate freedom, the truth that will set us free. So the apostles are declaring this. But then, in verses 33 through 39, I want us to see some of this advice that is given by Gamaliel. When they heard, the council heard this, they were cut to the heart and they took counsel to slay them, to kill them. Verse 34, then stood there up one in the council. He was a Pharisee named Gamaliel. He was a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, they were scattered and brought to naught. And then he says, and don't you remember, after this man rose up another named Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and he drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all Even as many as obeyed him, they were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. Hmm. (laughs) We would think... Our first take at Gamaliel's response seems to be very positive, but this is a misrepresentation of truth. His advice may have been helpful to the protection of the apostles. And and we would applaud that and, and are thankful for that, but he has a very clear misrepresentation of truth. Who is this guy anyway? Well, he was famous in Judaism and recognized as the greatest teacher of his day. He also was, uh, had a young student that was one of his uh, well-known students, a man that had actually broken away from Judaism. It was a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He was the most respected man of the Sanhedrin. This Gamaliel, he was the leader of the Pharisaic party. He was a Pharisee going against the Sadducees. They, they didn't gel. They were not buddies that hung out on the weekends uh, fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They were not vacationing together in, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. The, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were not partners. So you have Gamaliel, who is leading the Pharisaic party, well-known teacher, very well-respected. He stands in the middle of the council wanting to take this guy, these guys, the apostles, and kill them. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Give a little space. Back up, back up. Listen. Listen to my words. Now, again, we're thankful that he has saved the apostles from being killed in this moment. And his, white, his, his advice may have been wise, but it was also very foolish. It was pragmatic, it was political and and weak at best. Here's why. He compares the apostles' truth that they declared with two well-known rebels. 
Look in the text in verse 36. Theudas, he gives as the first example. In Jewish history, it tells us that this man claimed to have the power of Moses and the ability to part water with his rod. And so he gathered 400, about 400 followers, and he said that uh, they were going to rise up with a, a rebellion against the Roman Empire. And in doing so, they would flee for their lives, and he would be able to provide for them, just like Moses did. And so, sure enough, the insurrection against the Roman Empire happened, and, and uh, the Romans come after them. So the 400 plus follow their leader, and he leads them to the edge of the Jordan River. And there he says, let's wait for them to approach. And so the Roman Empire and soldiers coming after these 400 plus who have shown outward rebellion against the empire. And then he takes his rod and taps it against the Jordan River, waiting for the waters to part, except it never happened. He did it again, and yet it never happened until the Roman Empire finally came on them with the soldiers and killed him. And his 400 followers dispersed, some probably losing their life. This was a well-known rebel at the time of this incident. And he is comparing the apostles to this rebel that if it's a work of men, it's, it's not going to happen. It won't happen at all and you won't have to worry about it. Then he adds another, Judas of Galilee. In verse number 37, this Judas of Galilee, he was a man who said it was God's will for the Jews to cease from paying taxes. Sounds familiar. And so Judas of Galilee comes and he gathers his crew of people who also buy into that and believe that it is God's will for them to stop paying taxes to the Roman Empire. And so they try their best to get away with this for as long as they can until the Roman soldiers come after them. And Judas of Galilee lost his life, and his followers were scattered as well. So Gamaliel is saying, let's just wait and see. If this is the work of man, it's going to crumble. But if it's the work of God, you cannot fight against it. Now, we can sit here and say, that's a pretty good situation for the apostles, except for the misinterpretation, the misrepresentation of the truth. May we never misrepresent the truth of the gospel. Our lives must clearly show God's work, not our own. These rebels are two men who concocted some idea on their own. It was a way for them to devise a plan to boost their own ego and, and to fulfill their own mission. This was something of man work, and they were gathering their own following. What the apostles were doing were just following in the footsteps of Jesus, who had poured into them and commissioned them and trained them to go and proclaim the truth. And so church today, may we never misrepresent the truth. We have to deal with our past before we can experience the freedom of our future. Here's what happens so often in the Christian's life is that our past holds us back. And our past will cause this domino effect and it constantly is tearing us down because one thing leads to another, to another, to another. And instead of wiping it clear and just saying, I'm ready for a fresh start, we allow the baggage to continue to be brought up. We continue to carry it heavy and we forget about the promises that God has already offered to all of those who believe. Do you remember his offer? Number one, genuine forgiveness. 
This is where he blots out all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it has been blotted out. It has been buried in the deepest parts of the sea, removed as far as the east is from the west. It is not for you to worry about. It is for you to take care of when that broken relationship happens in your life. But you get freedom from that past. Too often the past and the memories of the past haunt us. They handcuff us and we become immobile for the work of the gospel. And now we let that come out and misrepresent truth. Because people around us know that we're a God follower, a Christ follower, and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, yet our countenance shows something so drastically different. Because we're carrying guilt, remorse, we don't have the joy of the Lord as our strength, as our motive, and as our zeal. Because we're so consumed by this. And instead of taking this genuine forgiveness, people begin to look at you and say, I thought Christians were supposed to be joyful. I thought Christians had more going well in their life. Now, we we know that the Christian life is not all peachy keen and a bed of roses. We know that it has its bumps and bruises, and some of you can show those bruises today. We know that the Christian life has its, its wiggly worms and it's just it's crazy town. But the reality is, is that in the midst of all of that storm, we can find ourselves on stable rock because our eyes are locked in on our one true source, Jesus Christ. So when we misrepresent truth, we're trying to get people to feel sorry for us. We want people to feel sorry for our life and our circumstance. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my past. And this is why I'm so sad. And this is why I can't do God's work because I'm not worthy and I can't be used by him. So take his promise of genuine forgiveness and move past the past. But also he promised this, this assurance that our past need not ever control our future. So I am free in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And I can move forward for the glory of God, and I can represent his truth as being life-changing. Why would anybody want to sit down with you knee-to-knee and coffee-to-coffee and hear about the gospel of peace in your life that has transformed you when you have a countenance that says, my life is miserable? You know, dying to yourself and carrying a cross is probably not what everybody wants to sign up for. But C.S. Lewis said, for true Christianity is to follow that way. If you want a religion of, of, of comfort, you go find something else. Because Christianity costs something. And for all of us as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost us. And that's why cultural Christianity has all but died off. Because now we are going to represent the truth and we're going to do it with great power and vigor. So the cycle of sin can be broken and we can rise against it. So remove the doubt and live this declaration of the truth. Third, in verses 40 through 42, is now their reaction. So Gamaliel has given his wisdom. Back up a step, guys. Let's think through this. These apostles remind me of two other men in the past. Let me tell you about them. He does. And he says, now let's just wait and see. If it's a work of man, it'll crumble. If it's a work of God, you can't fight against it. So what does the council do? Verse 40. And to him, they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, 
They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So here's the continuation of the truth. Not really the result that we were hoping for in verse number 40, right? I mean, is that how we want our story to be written? Opposition, they want to kill us. They say, we're not going to kill you. Okay, that's good. That's good news. We're just going to beat you with 39 licks. This was a severe beating. This was one that would have left marks for them to remember for a whole long time. That's not the result we want. We don't want somebody to lash out at us when we offer them an invite. We don't want somebody to laugh and mock us for our foolish faith when we're trying to have conversation about the gospel. We get offended and hurt when people say, ah, Christianity is just a crutch. We take a little offense to that. Our feelings get hurt. And then all of a sudden we say, that's it, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I know that I offended that person, so I'm I'm not going to even try to talk to them anymore. And it doesn't really take a whole lot to steer us away from continuing the gospel truth. Think back at your life and your circumstances. What did it take to derail you from proclaiming the truth? See, the severe beating seems like a, a smidge of maybe a better option to the deaf. But Jesus had made it clear that it is impossible to be neutral about him. Remember his words in Matthew 12, 30? He said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. So the apostles left rejoicing. Did you see that in verse 41? (laughs) But let me ask you this. What were they rejoicing about? They were not rejoicing that their life had been spared. They're not rejoicing that Gamaliel had stood up for them. Oh, we've got a new partner in the faith. They they were not rejoicing that they just had yet another day to live. What does the Bible tell us in verse number 41? It says, and beholding the man, excuse me, verse 41, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So they were found worthy to suffer for him. Christians, William Temple put it this way and said, we are called to the hardest of all tasks, to fight without hatred, to resist without bitterness, and in the end, if God grant it so, to triumph without vindicativeness. Hmm. At a time when the early church was focusing on the furious opposition that they were facing at every turn. They were facing at best these tolerant indecisions. What they were seeing was consistent growth. Look at chapter 6, verse number 1. And in those days, the number of the disciples multiplied. Opposition brought growth. It really brings to light a whole new meaning when we talk about how Growing things means changing things. So anything that is growing and alive is constantly changing. But the beauty of this for the apostles was that they were not changing the message. 
They were not changing the mission. They were not changing the truth. But they were experiencing a change in who was receiving it. They were seeing more people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Christianity was a symbol of contradiction. It was going against something. It was very radical. Hey, these two guys that Gamaliel talked about, they were radical in their moment. But before them, a man by the name of Jesus Christ came onto the scene and to the religious establishment, everything he said, touched, and did was very radical for them. But he made a big difference and a huge change. Not everybody bought into it. The enemy tried to stop it, but the truth came through. Today, if we were to travel to Toulon, France, we would have the privilege and opportunity to take a tour of the Trans World Radio transmitter building. Now, Trans World Radio is a multinational evangelical Christian radio station. And there in Toulon, France, it's this, they've got this massive white column building on a hillside overlooking the sea. So it's a building that was originally built by Adolf Hitler. It was from that building that he intended the message of his false ideology to permeate this particular part of the known world. One man's message was silenced, and now that building houses transmitters that are used to transmit the message of the gospel over the airwaves. As you leave that building and you look down by the sea, you will see something white and massive. You're going to see multiple columns. These were originally built in a circular fashion on this rocky hill. And as you walk closer to them, you will see that half of the columns have already fallen and half of the columns still stand tall. And then as you get closer, you're going to find that it's just absolutely magnificent to see these structures. This monument was built by Julius Caesar to honor his victory over France more than 2,000 years ago. You can roughly translate the Latin words at the base that are declaring his glory and all of his might. Quite interesting, isn't it? When you think about that scene, underneath the shadows of the trans world radio antennas lies the ruined monuments of a man who had hoped to rule the world and whose kingdom eventually crumbled. The building where the gospel is sent out, built by Adolf Hitler to send out his message to brainwash people, is now used to speak the unstoppable truth. The memorial at the bottom of the hill is, are columns that stood one day, used to stand uh, to, to praise the work of a man, which eventually died and his kingdom crumbled. So we would look at this text today. And would say, yeah, you're right, Gamaliel. If it is the work of men, their voice will be silenced and their kingdom will not last. But if it is the work of God, the message will be ongoing. And the kingdom that is being built one day and here on earth as well as throughout the new heaven and the new earth is eternal and never failing. That's why we so passionately grab a hold of the unstoppable truth because it goes much further past us and it goes much further ahead of us. It is something that we have the privilege to proclaim. It is something that we can declare and we can continue because it is never failing. That's unstoppable truth. The unstoppable truth shows its stamp of authenticity by the proof of its longevity. 
It has never failed. It has never ceased. And the unstoppable truth will last for all eternity. That's the message we proclaim today.